From our nation's capital, this is Naps Chat. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter And make believe it came from you Hi, this is Bob Levy, the Director of Legislative and Political Affairs at the National Association of Postal Supervisors, and welcome to this week's edition of NAPS Chat. Today, we are privileged to have our Secretary-Treasurer, Chuck Mulder, join us to schmooze a bit this week. Chuck, welcome to NAPS Chat. Uh, well, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for having me back. I, I thought you had forgotten about me there. It's been a while, so uh, I'm, I'm happy to be back in the uh, secured location. Well, we know that uh, the association is currently undergoing an audit, and you have your hands full with membership, so yes. uh, we didn't want to overly burden you with uh, visiting <laughs> us down the hallway here. Or, I appreciate uh, that. Or, or Zooming in uh, remotely, So, uh, yes. but welcome. Uh, yes, thank you. Welcome back. <laughs> we have been focusing for the last uh, couple of weeks on uh, pieces of legislation impacting the Postal Service, starting with the CARES Act and uh, the HEROES Act and a number of other bills, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But what our members uh, may not understand is that the CARES Act also impacted NAPS operations. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I- I'm actually happy to talk about that. So going back, Bob, to LTS, and uh, you know, again, you and Ivan Bruce put together a tremendous LTS, and coming right out of that is when things really began to really take off as far as the pandemic, especially here in Virginia. And we closed NAPS headquarters the week after LTS because of the concerns the state uh, was having and so forth. So we followed uh, CDC guidelines and the state of Virginia guidelines and closed NAPS headquarters. And we made a decision to be good employers and to keep our staff on the payroll. Uh, and we also made a decision that the operation of NAPS had to continue, especially during the COVID pandemic times. So everyone on our staff, we purchased a uh, laptop so they could work from home with a program called Screen Connect that allows uh, our staff to work from home as if they were working on their desktop. So we felt it was important that we have a continuity of operations here at NAPS headquarters. So we went along with that for quite some time. And as I saw legislation that was getting passed and uh, uh, noticed about PPP, which affected private businesses. So I talked to our accountant and our firm that actually does our audits and also helps prepare our our taxes and said, look, does NAPS qualify for anything like PPP? So had some research done and we found out that we did not qualify for PPP. In fact, nonprofits were specifically excluded from PPP, generally speaking because a nonprofit like us would maybe have a consistent, more consistent revenue base, uh, not be subject so much to the whims of the economy from the pandemic and some of the downfalls of, of that, that 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 rolled out. But we began to do some more research, and we talked to some tax attorneys, largely through our auditing firm of Cohen Resnick, a very large company of tax attorneys there, and uh, had some calls with uh, a tax attorney who said that in the CARES Act, there actually was some uh, provision that would benefit uh, nonprofits. It's called the Employee Retention Credit. So rather than bore you with all of the... Uh, uh, interesting trivia about the em- employee retention credit. Generally, what it did was encourage, like PPP, it encouraged nonprofits to keep their staff working while their operations were closed, as we were. 
So it took some work and took some research, but essentially what it is is a $10,000 credit per employee eligible up to 50%. So in other words, you could take up to $5,000 per employee. So here at NAPS, we have seven uh, employees, three resident officers, four members of our staff. So essentially, it's a $35,000 credit that we'll take on our, when we file our 941, our employee payroll credits. So it's a, it's a good thing. So the investment that we made in keeping our staff actively working, even if it was at home, and purchasing laptops so they can continue to work at the organization, kind of paid off and it was revealed in the legislation. So it was a good benefit. We were good employers to keep our staff working. It was good for the organization because our members needed us. We had many, many calls from members over that time frame concerned about some of the impact of, of COVID, and uh, we still have that. Uh, so it was a good thing that we did, and we were rewarded somewhat for that in the legislation. So I'm always happy with anything that saves NAPS headquarters money, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm proud we were able to, to get that accomplished for our organization. And the operations of NAPS didn't really miss a beat no. during the pandemic because we were still maintaining membership files from our yep. perspective and doing government relations. We still were able to uh, maintain communications with members of Congress, Absolutely. as we'll, we'll talk about a little bit legislation mm-hmm. a little bit later. And SPAC also we will talk a little bit, but there's a continuity of operations despite the fact the pandemic was really wreaking havoc on the Washington metropolitan area, as it was with the United States Postal Service. Yes. That uh, we reflect our membership in that our membership continued to operate and manage effectively within the Postal Service, effectively manage a crisis. And by the same token, the resident officers here at headquarters were able to manage the pandemic and its impact on the organizational operations. Yeah, and every postal employee knows what a coop is continuity operations plan so every office has a coop and uh, we have one here at NAPS headquarters as well so we were able to implement that continuity operations plan and it's been successful and and that's a benefit to us it's a benefit to our members and a benefit to the postal service because we've been able to keep the lines of communication open with them and to relay concerns from the membership to headquarters and hopefully get issues resolved before they become too large. Were there any speed bumps in the process of maintaining continuity of operations during the pandemic as far as we were concerned? Well, I would say they were not roadblocks, but yeah, maybe some speed bumps. I mean, you know, not having the staff here and Ivan, Brian and I coming in here on a fairly regular basis, kind of at alternating times to keep the mail flow going and to keep the invoices paid and so forth. So, you know, we kept coming in on a regular basis. We also worked a lot from home as well. So it's in some ways it's um, easier to work from home. In some ways it's not so easy. And then not having the staff here for quite a while definitely impacted us. But we figured out that we had to pound phones forward to our cell phones. We figured that out. I think having everybody having a uh, laptop that they could log into their desktop was a huge benefit. And I really have to credit the staff, Emily, Charles, you, and, and Rebecca, all just kind of picked up, you know, the charge, so to speak, and decided that, hey, you know, we're going to pitch into this together and, and get us through it. So I'm hoping that from the members' perspective, they really didn't notice a whole lot of difference, that we were able to keep things rolling and flowing for them as if we were all still were here in the office. So I'd say 
Speed bumps, yeah, but not any roadblocks. I'm going to talk a little bit about membership. Right now, I believe if you exclude folks who are categorized as postmasters, we currently have around 70% of those eligible to be members of NAPS as members. Right. With the pandemic and with uh, branch meetings not really occurring in most locations at the, uh, currently, I mean, more than half the states right now are facing a resurgence or an explosion of COVID infection. How should branches branches approach membership recruitment during the pandemic? Yeah, it, it's difficult. You know, we launched a huge membership drive from headquarters here right in March, basically, in February and March. And our initial reaction from it was outstanding. We got 100 new applications in the first week or so alone. And then the coronavirus hit, COVID hit, and it kind of impacted our membership drive. Although uh, I would say it's somewhat been somewhat successful, though not as successful, I think, had we hoped, had we not uh, had the COVID issues. But it's impacted us and it's impacted local members. I mean, branches are having Zoom meetings now. I've been on several. Uh, it's a great tool, but not quite as good as being there. We're not having people that are able to attend new supervisor classes to sign up members because that's really where we're very effective at signing up new members is at these classes. So we haven't been able to attend a lot of those, very sporadic. So it's difficult to do the things we've normally been doing to try to sign up new members in this COVID-19, the coronavirus era that we're uh, under right now. So it's very challenging. So we've been able to maintain right around that 70, 71% membership level. And as you said, those are uh, EAS not coded as postmasters. So anybody that's in any uh, occupation that's not considered by the Postal Service a postmaster, that's what that number compares to. So we have about 10,000, over 10,000 non-members. We've kind of had that number consistently. And I know that uh, once we kind of get out of this um, this pandemic operation era, uh, we'll resume attacking that like we have done. But I, I do also want to say, people tell me, you know, Chuck, I send in 1187s every month, and we have some folks out there that do an amazing job signing up new members, and we appreciate those folks. But we get about 170 to 300 members uh, every month that leave the organization through a variety of means. Retirement, of course, is, is a big impact on us. In March and September of each year, people can submit an 1188 and to leave the organization. And surprisingly, we get quite a few of those during those time frames. And of course, we have some members that are separated for a variety of reasons, whether it's through a, an adverse action or through some other issue, uh, they leave the organization. So monthly, it's between 170 and 300 members a month we lose in the organization. So that means you've got to sign up 200 to 300 every month just to stay where we are, just to break even. So the challenge is how do we go beyond that two to 300 a month to break even, to stay even, and get to four, five, 600 a month? That would actually begin to really put a dent in that 10,000 plus non-member list. So that's the challenge. I know we're up for that, but right now certainly we're impacted uh, by that, and I would just encourage branches that, you know, you get your non-member list every month. I just did the DCO yesterday. The reports will be out Monday. 
So you get the non-member list every month. Keep going over that. Keep reaching out to these non-members. They need us. We need them. And uh, until we can kind of get back to normal operations, whenever that may be or whatever that may look like, we just got to make whatever efforts we can to reach out to those folks. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the challenges with not having these meetings and the, the branch meetings, and we're relegated to using Zoom meetings for branches and states and so forth. I could just mention that with regard to SPAC and raising uh, for the uh, Supervisors Political Action Committee, that has been extremely challenging because uh, we raise a considerable amount of revenue from these branch meetings. So what we've been forced to do, and hopefully everyone received their magazine last month that include the solicitation for SPAC because uh, that's something very we haven't done that I think in years sent a direct mail solicitation mm-hmm. as piggybacking the magazine yeah you know we've been we were talking about it Chuck and I have been talking about it ever since that uh, mailing went out mm-hmm. and we, we're monitoring how well we're doing and mm-hmm. uh, we're raising thousands of dollars yeah. through that uh, through that mechanism now it's I don't think it's going to be as much as branch because that person to person contact is invaluable but uh, it's helping us stay off basically stay relevant in the political environment right and and you're right when you say the lack of in-person branch meetings area meetings, trainings, uh, state conventions, and this was a national convention year. So we would have raised a lot of money for SPAC as we normally do during convention season, plus all the other uh, trainings that there our area vice presidents and regional vice presidents put on. So it's definitely been an impact, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear, and I encourage everybody who's listening, uh, you received that solicitation in the... Uh, Last magazine, please send that uh, contribution in for a SPAC. Uh, we are obviously impacted in, in terms of, of SPAC uh, because of the, the COVID-19. And one thing I do, because I've been asked this many times, I do want to say every, every dime a person gives to SPAC goes to SPAC. So NAP's headquarters underwrites uh, associated costs with SPAC. So the magazine, the, the solicitation that went out in the magazine, that's part of a cost that we absorb through NAPS headquarters. Uh, the pins, uh, the variety of other things that, that, that go on in uh, support of SPAC efforts, those are all underwritten by NAPS headquarters. Those costs are paid, uh, and what we have a, a general ledger code that, that associates those costs. So every dollar that you give to SPAC goes to SPAC, goes to exactly what it's to be used for, which is to promote the NAPS legislative agenda as well as the legislative agenda of the Postal Service to Capitol Hill. So it's a, it's a great benefit, and you should have confidence that if you give us $5 or $100, all of that money goes toward the SPAC effort. I should also add that in addition to the uh, solicitation in the last month's magazine, there is always, and we really promote this, the Postal Ease uh, mechanism by which to contribute, which is a salary withholding or to do an OPM annuity withholding, and which is a rather a painless way of contributing to SPAC and helping us promote our legislative and legislative agenda on Capitol Hill. And many folks, many NAPS members do participate in that. Yeah. But that's a good segue for uh, to talk a little bit about legislation, Chuck. Sure. And we did speak, uh, you started talking about the CARES Act. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go through a couple of bills and 
we'll talk about the bills afterwards, how the national office, resident officers as they go out, as they communicate to our members are promoting the uh, NAPS, NAPS legislative agenda. But you, you mentioned the CARES Act. The CARES Act, which was signed into law by the president back in the end of March, included amongst its provisions a $10 billion loan to the Postal Service. But that loan had strings attached to it. And uh, there was a, there have been meetings with, on Capitol Hill with the Postal Service and the Treasury Department who are thus far refusing to identify what those the conditions of the loan are, and that is extraordinarily frustrating to Congress inasmuch as they wrote the law providing for the conditions to be imposed upon the, uh, upon the uh, request of a loan. Thus far, the Postal Service has not requested the loan, so it's sort of like we don't know what the—we'll only find out the conditions of the loan when the Postal Service asks for the loan— there was the HEROES Act, which was passed by the House of Representatives more recently. It's pending in the Senate. Uh, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is no fan of the HEROES Act. The HEROES Act includes $25 billion emergency appropriation to the Postal Service. It eliminates the strings that were imposed on the Postal Service if they would request the $10 billion, which was authorized in the CARES Act. It provides for hazard pay for all frontline employees, whether they be in the private sector or public sector, and that, for as far as our members are concerned, that would amount to an additional $10 per hour for frontline postal supervisors and those who supervise frontline employees of the Postal Service, capping off at $10,000, and it would provide for federal assistance in vote-by-mail operations, which is now taking root. I mean, we looked at this week's primaries in New York and Kentucky, and they haven't sort of released results yet of those primaries in a lot of the races because they're still counting absentee ballots that were mailed in. Now, that is not to reflect there's any problem with the ballots, just that they are postmarked by Election Day and till the, till the ballots get counted and processed by the Board of Elections takes a bit of time. But they are there's no allegations whatsoever of any inappropriate activity with regard to those ballots. Uh, legislation has been in- introduced by uh, the chairwoman of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, Carolyn Maloney, and Congressman Peter King. And Peter King was on our NAPS just a, uh, last month or a month and a half ago talking about legislation to provide for emergency, a bipartisan bill for emergency appropriations. We understand that Senator Collins and Senator Feinstein Senator Collins from Maine, Republican, Senator Feinstein, Democrat from California, are working on a companion bill to H.R. 7015. Hopefully it'll be introduced before the July 4th break, which would be next week. And next week, the House of Representatives is going to take up an infrastructure bill, H.R. 2, which will include an additional $25 billion for the Postal Service for infrastructure costs, including the purchase of a next-generation vehicular fleet, and also for up-to-date and innovative mail processing equipment. So these are all pieces of legislation that we need to fight for, among other pieces of legislation, and SPAC promotes that and helps us fight for those types of issues. Yeah, and and everything you just just mentioned there, Bob, the HEROES Act, uh, 7015, hazard pay, why do we have to fight for that? These are just things that should be done in the middle of a pandemic especially what what is more important 
than keeping the postal service. But whatever your political persuasion is or whatever your thoughts are on anything, what could be more important right now as a presidential election approaches than keeping the postal service afloat to deliver all the absentee ballots and vote by mail? What could be more important than rewarding the people working on the front lines during a pandemic, a deadly pandemic that's claimed over 120,000 lives in America? What could be more important than a few extra dollars to recognize the commitment that these folks have made during this very difficult time? Why do we have to fight for that? Unfortunately, Politics rears its ugly head, even in the midst of doing the right thing. So we have to get out on the front lines and engage in hand-to-hand combat almost to help Congress people do the thing that they should be doing anyway. It's disheartening on one hand, but it also highlights the need for us on the other to take very seriously the efforts that not only NAPS, but other members of the Fed Postal Coalition and other groups are up fighting for all of us as postal and federal employees to just get what we should be getting. Not asking for anything above and beyond and and give us and just lie in our pockets and reward us for nothing. To give us what we deserve, what the American people deserve, and just to do the right thing. It amazes me that we have to fight to have Congress do the right thing, but that's where we are. So we have to fight and it takes money to fight. Let's just, let's just lay it out there. It takes money to make the fight. So whatever you can give, if it's only $5 a pay, sign up for the drive for five, take it out of your paycheck. You won't even miss it. If you got to give up a Dunkin' Donuts, who I'm a Dunkin' Donuts fan, by the way, if you got to give up your Dunkin' Donuts coffee in the morning, then you got to do it. This is about doing what's right and about saving this great American institution that's 245 years old, mentioned in the Constitution of the United States. We got to fight for it so it can survive and thrive. And this fall, deliver on behalf of the American people an election that has confidence that the results will be untainted and we'll get it done. That's what we do. Someone asked me the other day, they were on a telecon with some district or area. And a question came up that said, well, how are we going to get all these ballots delivered? And I said, because that's what we do. We'll get them all delivered. Mail-in ballots, political mail. This, this is what we do. We've been doing it for 245 years. And we're going to do it in 2020. And when it's all said and done, all the political mail will get delivered. All the ballots will get delivered. Everything will have an efficient process, and we can have great confidence in the role that the Postal Service will play in our democracy again. People think that vote-by-mail is something new and novel. In fact, vote-by-mail dates back to the Civil War because that's how the Union and Confederate troops actually voted right. from when they were in battle. And there was a fight back then about the, about the accuracy and uh, the legitimacy of the vote by mail. Much of the same arguments were made then as are being made today. But you know what? It worked. Yep. If it's good enough for our soldiers, it's good enough for voters overseas to mail their ballots, why isn't it good enough for American citizens, particularly in those states that are being 
severely impacted by the pandemic right now. And we're seeing the explosion mm. of vote by mail and its uh, desirability. I mean, I mean, well over 80% of the Americans actually support the option to vote by mail as a, not only as a convenience, but to protect their health and their safety. Right, and, and let's, let's, let's lay something else out there. There's no evidence, zero. If you have some, send it to me. That vote by mail causes corruption or is unreliable or foreigners are printing ballots out and stuffing mailboxes all over America. There's no evidence of any of that. If, if someone has it, I'd love to see it. But historically, we have states that do nothing but vote by mail. It's the safest, easiest, most convenient way to vote. And every citizen needs to vote. If you, if you never thought about voting as being important, y y you got to know that right now, with all that's going on in our world today, nothing is more impo important than people getting out to vote. And nothing is better and safer and easier to vote than to vote by mail. And you're right, Bob. We're seeing the results from, from New York and from Kentucky. It's going to take a couple of days. And we, and we may not know the, res the, the result of races on election night anymore. That, that may be something we no longer have the luxury to have of, of watching the votes come in and, and the commentators talking about it. We may not know for several days, maybe even weeks down the road, as all the mail-in votes come in from America and from overseas and so forth, what the results will be. But, but what's important is that the results will be legitimate, they'll be accurate, and there'll be no voter fraud and tampering. There's no evidence that that's ever happened. It won't happen. And we just got to get over that and stop listening to the talking points of those that want to suppress the vote and just, just get out and let us, as the Postal Service, let us, supervisors, the managers, the postmasters, the carriers, clerks, mail handlers, the whole, the whole group of us, let us do our job and we'll get this, we'll get this done like we always do that's who we are. That's what we do. I just want to end with, the, with this one point, Chuck. In case anyone out there suspects that this is a partisan issue, I would just mention that the head of VoteSafe, which is an organization, a bipartisan organization, working with state and local officials to expand and strengthen, strengthen vote-by-mail operations, is the former Republican governor of the state of Pennsylvania, Tom Ridge, mm -hmm. who also served as the Secretary of Homeland Security in the administration of George W. Bush. So this is not a partisan issue. This is a bipartisan issue. And f folks who want to ensure the integrity and participation of American voting, the American voting public, are, should be supportive of vote by mail or of the providing the option to vote by mail. And we, we've seen for how long now, Bob? Years. The most trusted federal agency consistently year in year out number one is the postal service so people believe in us they trust us to do our job and voting should never be a partisan issue you you can support the candidate of your choice this is the country we live in and that's why it's such an amazing country you can support whoever you want to support but voting itself should never be a partisan issue and efforts to suppress the vote or restrict the vote should never be contemplated or allowed. 
people need to vote. Whatever their political persuasion is, they should have the right to exercise that vote in the best, easiest, and most comfortable way that they want to. If it's going to a polling place and voting in person, then that should be available to them. If it's voting by mail, that should be available to them as well. It's, it's not a partisan issue, and we just have to keep on fighting it and fighting sometimes against the wind, but we'll keep doing that. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week, Chuck. We hope to get you back sooner than the, the last time. We, we know how to get a hold of me. We know how to get a hold of you. <laughs> anyway, till next week, have a great and weekend. And write myself a letter. And make